These are the Greek Myth Files, your entree into the world of Greek myth in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to another episode of the Greek Myth Files. This is the fifth part of our series, What Greek Myth Is and Is Not. And in this installment, we will move away from the mythical story world of the Greeks a bit to take a closer look at their religious life. That is, the gods they worshipped, how they worshipped them, and how myths do and do not intersect with their religious practices and beliefs. As we mentioned in our first episode in the series, Greek myth is not the same thing as Greek religion. Now that's true, but it's also a gross oversimplification because there are stories about the Greek gods that are connected to their religion from gods creating sacrifice to their traveling around the Greek world to set up cult sites and temples, among much else. To help us think about this a little bit better, we'll bring on board a couple of really awesome scholars. My colleague at the University of New Hampshire, Paul Robertson, and Professor Sarah Isles Johnson from The Ohio State University. Both of them are experts on religion. So sit back and buckle up for our next episode of The Greek Myth Files. Since this podcast is focused on Greek myth, most of what we'll deal with here is religion as a backdrop to the mythical story world. But in order to determine how and to what degree myth and religion are related, we'll need to think a bit more about how we define religion and religious practices in the first place. And since I'm not an expert in Greek religion by any means, I've asked a colleague of mine at UNH, Professor Paul Robertson, to help. He's made the study of religion in the Mediterranean his focus for the past decade and more. And here's how he would define religion. Religion is a series of beliefs and practices, so stuff people think and stuff people do, related to non-obvious beings. So spirits, ancestors, ghosts. So it's stuff people think and stuff people do related to non-obvious beings. For me, the biggest contrast between that definition of religion and myth is that religion involves practices. It involves stuff people do. So these are rituals, Uh, These are activities, you know, meal practices, prayer practices. Myth does not have social practices. It can have social practices attached, but it doesn't have to. And for me, that is one way to think about them as very different things. It's these practices, things that people do, that have continually fascinated humans. And in terms of the religious practices of the Greeks, theirs can seem so very different from our own. As mentioned in our episode on the basics, the Greeks worshipped a pantheon of gods, many gods, instead of a single divine figure. Another vivid difference in their religious practices resides in the fact that the Greeks performed what is called the blood sacrifice of animals to honor the gods. This is in addition to less spectacular sacrifices in the form of libations, which is the ritual pouring of a liquid, and the offerings of first fruits, which is presenting a god with the first part of the harvest before the humans consume the rest. It's worth pointing out here that the origin of the word sacrifice in English originally had nothing to do with giving up something, but simply comes from the Latin phrase sacra facera, meaning to do sacred things, to perform a ritual. Anyways, one of the stark differences between what might be called modern religious expression and that of the ancients is the role that belief plays in the process. Speaking very generally, the ancients focused more on making sure that they did the right things 
rather than that they believed in and had a personal connection with one or more gods. The reason that I emphasized very generally is that most organized religion today remains committed to ritual acts in addition to any personal connection, as I learned in one of my exchanges with Professor Robertson, who helped me think about how belief and practice works in religions now and then. You know, in the modern West, we tend to be more internalized and more belief-centric with respect to our belief in God, especially in religions like Christianity, Judaism, Islam. We tend to think it's our private beliefs and relationship with God, whoever that is, that defines our religious affiliation. And the famous articulation of that is, oh, I'm spiritual, not religious, which means that I have all these thoughts and feelings, but I don't actually do any of the institutional practices. That's the yes part. The no part is that most people uh, still do a lot of stuff and people still make offerings and they give prayers to God for help with anything from football games to help on an exam. And I talk about this a lot in my classes that we tend to think of religion as very thought centric, but in fact, most religion that is, is practiced is very practice centric. So if you go to churches and temples, most people don't philosophize and think about God. They're thinking in very concrete ways and acting in very concrete ways to thank God for something, to ask for something concrete in return. The Greeks obviously felt the need to worship the gods and to perform certain acts for multiple divinities that could affect their own world. But everything had to be just so. As we find in ritual acts and modern religious practices, there were very precise steps that had to be done in the right order and in the right way. Any misstep would render the ritual null and void and was a show that the gods were unhappy. And in blood sacrifice, the slightest sign of resistance from the animal about to be killed would invalidate the act, indicating that the gods were not going to respond in a positive way. In addition to doing things the right way, you also have to say the right things as well. Any negative or inappropriate word would spell disaster for the ritual. The Greek for negative speech in a ritual was blasphemia, and is the origin of our word blasphemy. By contrast, the euphemia, or proper speech, usually but not always involved the holy silence followed by a ritual prayer. Now, by prayer, I don't necessarily mean the kind of private, silent prayer that we're used to, although people did offer those kind of private prayers, but rather a sort of public ritualized statement. Those appealing to the gods, by the way, did not normally kneel, but rather stretched out their hands towards the religious icon, usually a statue, or the heavens' palms upward when appealing to a divine figure. Speaking very generally again, ancient religions had as their main goal keeping the gods content so that they would not cause trouble or more trouble, or asking the gods to give them some favor. One of the central tenets about ancient religions is nicely expressed in a short Latin phrase, do ut des, which means something like, I give so that you give, or I give so that you may give. The point here is that human ritual acts are required for the gods to return the favor but the relationship is decidedly one-sided. No matter how perfect our acts and speech are, the gods do not have to and often do not reciprocate. A good example of how one-sided it all is comes from Homer's Iliad, the great poem about the Trojan War, or at least part of the war. In Book 6, about a quarter of the way through, the Trojans are in deep trouble, with the Greeks pushing them back into the city. Another Trojan, a seer named Helenus, who is a priestly brother of the warrior Hector, 
urges him, Hector, to go back into the city and instruct the women of the city to appeal to the goddess Athena to help them. The motivation of the poet is, of course, to bring Hector inside the city walls to see his wife and son one last time, but when he does enter the walls, he asks his mother Hecuba to make a sacrifice and pray to Athena to help them. And here's how Homer describes the scene. Hecuba went down to a storeroom filled with scent, and there they were, brocaded beautiful robes, the work of Sidonian women. Magnificent Paris brought those women back himself from Sidon, sailing the open seas on the same long voyage he swept Helen off, her famous father's child. Lifting one from the lot, Hecuba brought it out for great Athena's gift, the largest, loveliest, richly worked, and like a star it glistened. Then she went to the temple, a long train of women following in her wake. Once they reached Athena's shrine on the city's crest, the beautiful Theano opened the doors to let them in, Athena's priestess, chosen by the Trojans. Then, with a shrill wail, they all stretched their arms to Athena as Theano, her face radiant, lifting the robe on high, spread it out across the sleek-haired goddess's knees and prayed to the daughter of mighty father Zeus. Queen Athena, shield of our city, glory of goddesses, now shatter the spear of Diomedes. That wild man, hurl him headlong down before the sky and gates. At once we'll sacrifice twelve heifers in your shrine, yearlings never broken, if only you'll pity Troy, the Trojan wives, and all our helpless children. Thus she prayed, but Pallas Athena refused her prayer. Think about the precision of the ritual acts. Hecuba picks out the most beautiful robe of all, worked by expert weavers. The women of the town go en masse to the shrine, and they raise a ritual wail and stretch out their hands towards the statue of the goddess, while the priestess lays the robe on her knees carefully. Then there follows a prayer with a vow, a promise to sweeten the deal. They would make a massive sacrifice if the goddess would just help them. But then Homer shuts the door. Athena rejects their prayer outright. There it is in a nutshell. Do ut deis. I give so that you may give. The gods, however, are not bound by our acts. But if we do not put in the effort, there is no chance that they will help. All of that is fine and good, and ancient Greek religion is a fascinating subject to study. But since this podcast concerns myth, it's time to turn to the stories that involve the gods that the Greeks worshipped. For the moment, we'll leave aside the great heroes like Agamemnon, Pelops, and Menelaus, who had cult sites and were worshipped around Greece, and focus instead on gods like Zeus, Hera, Hermes, and so on. When we survey the Greek landscape, we find everywhere temples, altars, and sanctuaries of the gods the sacred places where the historical Greeks would worship their gods with rituals and prayers. Then there are the stories that the Greeks told of their distant past, ones that treated both the gods and the heroes. How exactly did these stories come to be? What motivated people to tell them to each other? These are only two of several questions that arise about the relationship of those gods and heroes to the narrative stories that are told about them, and these are important, not least because they have greatly exercised scholars of myth for over 200 years. One such answer might be that myths, in their original form, embody some ancient truth about the gods and their religious beliefs. 
But as I've argued in an earlier episode, looking for the origin of a myth is all but impossible. And as we will see in the next segment, trying to strip away the trappings of the myth to its essential and original core is problematic for other reasons too. Another answer might be that the narration of myths were tied to the rituals and practices of their religion. For quite a while, there was a group of scholars, now called the Cambridge Ritualist School, who proposed that myths were originally ritual texts that would somehow be inseparable from the ritual itself. In other words, a true myth would have been what was spoken while the ritual act was being performed, or the myth could explain the ritual, how it came to arise, and so on. Now, as I've mentioned earlier, this sort of uh, attempt to tie a ritual to a myth has been debunked. And yet, there are clearly some myths that are related to the Greeks' religious life. The Homeric hymns are focused solely on the gods, their cult titles, and the longer hymns include some myths about the gods that they were praising. In our third episode, we explored the ways in which the Eleusinian mysteries were established by Demeter in her search for her daughter. That hymn is focused centrally on a goddess, but what was the function of that story? Was it sung at a local festival at Eleusis, celebrating the foundation of the ritual? Or was it meant to broadcast the importance of Eleusis to a wider audience? Or was it just to entertain? We also find references to the stories of gods in the artwork in the sanctuaries and temples themselves, showing that there is a close connection between the gods in the sacred spaces and the stories about those gods. Consider the Parthenon, the great temple to Athena on the Acropolis in Athens. On one of the pediments, that's the triangular part at the top of the facade, we find statues of Athena and Poseidon with an olive tree and a water wave in relief behind them. This, of course, calls to mind the myth of the contest between the two gods over the patronage of the city of Athens. And here's a brief summary of that story. Poseidon and Athena contended over Attica. Poseidon struck down on the Acropolis of Attica with his trident and created a sea wave, but Athena created the olive tree. Their judge was Cecrops, the king of the region of Attica, and he assigned the land to the goddess, saying that while the sea was everywhere, the olive tree was unique to Athens. Here we have the well-known story of how Athena becomes the patron of the city. Now, if you were thinking, how could Athena have lost since the city bears her name? You're quite right. She has to win. She's going to win. This myth is explanatory, or etiological to use a technical word, in three different ways. First, it purports to explain how Athens got its name and to show their close relationship with the goddess. As a side note, Athena was the protector of all cities, so most towns had a close connection with the goddess, and even, as we saw earlier, the Trojan worshipped her. Second, it shows how important olive cultivation was to Athens. In fact, at the great festival of the goddess in Athens, the Panathenaea, the most common prize for winners in the athletic contest was olive oil. The victor in the boxing match, for example, got 60 amphorae, or big jugs, coming out to over 600 gallons of the stuff. Third, the myth also shows the importance of the sea to the Athenians, whose land was surrounded on three sides by the sea and whose navy was second to none in ancient Greece. But for all that, it isn't clear just how this myth would have been connected to the actual worship of either Athena or Poseidon, and that's not unusual for lots of stories involving a god or other gods. For instance, how would Zeus's seduction of Leda in the form of a swan, or Oedipus's killing of his father and marrying his mother, be tied to a ritual or some religious act? 
As we tried to make clear, there are scholars who privilege the original myths and think that later stories are just perversions of pure and genuine stories of deep religious significance. This may be so, but all such thinking, I would argue, is merely speculative and, as we'll explore more in our next segment, ignores the narrative-rich culture of the Greeks. In this segment, we'll feature a conversation that I had with Professor Sarah Isles Johnston, an expert on Greek religion and the mythical world who, I hope, will disabuse me of some long-held and probably wrong beliefs about religion and myth and how they can work together. In particular, we're going to explore some of the ideas in her recent book, in particular the argument that Greek myths helped foster belief in the Greek gods and heroes that populated the Greek mythical story world. To do so, she brings in some fascinating work from scholars outside of the classical world. And like all of our conversations with scholars, this interview has been edited for clarity and smoothness. Well, we are thankful today to have Professor Sarah Isles Johnston here on our podcast. She holds a position at the Ohio State University, the Ohio State University, where she is the College of Arts and Sciences Distinguished Professor of Religion. In addition to co-editing a number of works on religion and myth, she is author of five books, including ones on the afterlife, divination, the goddess Hecate, and most recently, the story of myth, which has the great distinction of being scholarly while remaining accessible to all audiences. So thanks for being here, Sarah. It's wonderful to be here, Scott. So the title of our podcast today is called Greek Myth is Not Greek Religion. So you're the perfect person to have on the podcast. And it's meant to be somewhat tendentious and hammer home the idea that Greek myth is a lot more than a primitive expression of religious feeling, belief, or explanation. Uh, in your book, The Story of Myth, you offer a provocative argument that I want to get to in a minute. But in one of the earlier chapters, you discuss the history of how myth was seen as what you call the ritual's handmaid. And I wonder if you could briefly explain to our listeners what the so-called Cambridge Ritualist School was and how it and its successors got things wrong. The Cambridge Ritualist School came to life, so to speak, at the turn of the last century. And they were very excited, as they well should have been, about the emerging field of anthropology. So um, relatively suddenly, there's all of this fascinating information pouring into academia, not only at Cambridge, about what people in Africa did, tribal Africans were doing, people in New Guinea, people in South America, and this was highly stimulating. And so people such as Jane Ellen Harrison and James Fraser got interested in trying to recreate ancient Greek and Roman rituals, for which our evidence is um, somewhat sparse. And in the course of trying to recreate the rituals, they looked to myth as a possible, um, maybe the best word is libretto for ritual. They understood myths and rituals to have a very, very close relationship. Myth was always secondary. Myth was either explaining what the ritual was about. And they of course said, well, uh, the Greeks and Romans long ago forgot what these rituals really for, for, were for. So they had to make up stories to justify the rituals or to explain the rituals. So in that sense, looking at a myth, they thought would help them fill in the blanks of their knowledge about the ritual. The other thing they thought the myths were doing was, as I said, providing a libretto that as you were performing the ritual, you would be telling the myth. 
So that in a, in a nutshell, of course, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's my nutshell explanation of what the ritualists were all about. So let me just follow up by saying that in your book, you, you actually take them and others to task, I think rightly, uh, rightfully so, about what we call the essentialization of myth, right? Where you have to remove all the trappings of narrative to get to the real true meaning. Can you explain a little bit what that, like why that's a problem? Sure. And I should say before I do that, that all of the approaches to myth that have emerged in the last approximately 150 years, I think have value. So when I'm critiquing the ritualists or those who approach myth um, psychoanalytically or structurally, I'm not saying those approaches aren't any good. I think they are good. It's just that I think we've overlooked something. That is that these approaches do what you were just calling, Scott, um, essentialization. They want to rip away everything that makes the myth narratively in interesting. They want to boil it down to what they think are its component parts so that they can then analyze those component parts. But no one's going to listen to a story like that. Um, let's take the myth of Medea and her children for a moment. We've got several variations of that coming down to us from antiquity. In some cases, Medea kills her children herself because she's mad at her husband. In some cases, the local people kill her children because they're mad at her. In some cases, the goddess Hera kills her children. And in some cases, Medea accidentally kills them when she is attempting to immortalize them. All that these stories have in common is that Medea's children die. So if you boil it down, you've got, there was this woman, her name was Medea, her children died. Well, you know, no one's gonna engage with that. So my argument is until we really come to terms with the fact that the Greeks were telling engaging stories, very engaging stories, they were highly polished stories, the ones that we have, um, then we're not really gonna fully understand the work that myths do. That's a great segue for uh, kind of my next question, which is your, your main argument is a fascinating one. It's one that I'm thinking over deeply myself, namely that the narration of Greek myth, that is the way the Greek myths were narrated and told, contributed to the Greeks' belief that the gods and heroes existed and could wield significant power over humans. Now, you don't necessarily argue that this fosters sincere belief uh, but that the minds of the listeners are prepared for what you call and what other sociologists, I believe, call a parasocial relationship or a PSR. So can you talk a little bit about what a PSR is and how that operates within this kind of world of narrative stories about Greek gods and heroes? Sure. But, but first, I will slightly take issue with your term sincere belief. Mm. Belief is always something that's very hard to recover. Um, if you're uh, a cultural anthropologist today working on, you know, fill in the blank, evangelical Christian communities, and you want to understand whether they sincerely believe, you're never going to get at that, especially because an individual changes from moment to moment as to whether they are sincerely, intensely believing in whatever God they believe in, to sometimes being, oh, you know, how can there be a God? Because the world is such a mess. So people segue in and out of levels of belief. Okay, so I'm gonna start by spelling out a little bit more what a parasocial relationship or PSR for Perfect. short is. An example, um, a very famous example is that when Charles Dickens was publishing The Old Curiosity Shop and it came out as a serial, so little chunks each few weeks, there was a character that everyone loved called Little Nell. 
And when Little Nell was killed off in one episode, people were extraordinarily upset. We have anecdotes from the time of things such as a member of parliament being so upset when he read the episode on a train that he rolled down the train window or opened the train window and threw the journal out the window. He, was, he just didn't even want to face this. We also know that when the ships coming to America, bringing what Americans knew would be the next issue of that serialized story, people were waiting on the docks and they were yelling to the ship as it came into the port, is little Nell dead? So that's a very intense parasocial relationship. And what I mean by that is we can stand back and say little Nell didn't exist. She's a creation of Charles Dickens' imagination. But people became so engrossed in her that their emotional response was just as if she were a real person. And we've seen examples of that more recently, um, particularly for, for instance, with Harry Potter. Mm. And some study has been done by psychologists and sociologists with children, and to some extent with adults, that show that the children's emotional and cognitive responses to Harry Potter and the other characters, Hermione, Ron, et cetera, are actually no different from the responses that they have to their real life companions. Mm. So these are what we call parasocial relationships because as you said a moment ago, Scott, they're one way. The interesting thing that happens with those when you're talking about the ancient Greeks or arguably if we really wanna be scientific about it, any other person or group of people that has a set of religious beliefs. So you, you could say this about any God or angel or demon that you want, not just the ancient Greeks, they're believing in those gods and we say, man, they must be crazy, but they feel that they are getting response. So what we're calling a parasocial relationship between say the average ancient Greek and the goddess Athena, they see as being social because they could, for example, pray to Athena, say, oh, Athena, please let my business go well. If the business goes well, they think Athena has responded. So to get to the other part of your question, what helps to build parasocial relationships, as I've already kind of um, hinted at with my examples of Little Nell and Harry Potter, is a narratively rich environment. If the author or a number of people are making that character seem richly real through literature, through visual arts, through any other kind of um, representation, it's far likelier that members of the culture will create those parasocial relationships. Can you explain why the setting matters and the way that these myths are consumed is so important? Yes. The work that I've done on that depends a great deal on uh, work done by a folklorist named Dorothy Noyes. And Dorothy Noyes works on contemporary folk events. And by that, she means basically any kind of cultural event, um, whether it be a small village festival or something that is more elaborate. Noyes points out a couple interesting things. One is that everyone consumes cultural materials in one of two ways. They either seek these out or they don't seek them. In other words, you could be saying, oh, I wanna to go to the movies. Well, not during COVID, I suppose, but you could say, I wanna to go to the movies. And that is something that you are going to seek out. You're gonna to go to the theater. And that puts your mind into a different frame 
from if let's say you're doing the dishes at home and you're flipping through TV channels and you find a movie that looks interesting and it's already been on for a half an hour, but you're, you're kind of paying attention to it while you do the dishes. So obviously you're consuming that movie on TV in a very different way from the way that you are consuming a film. And I'm giving you a very short version of noise, much larger um, arguments here, but her point is that in most cultures, we are constantly surrounded by cultural forms. We are constantly consuming them, whether we're doing it while we do the dishes or, or in some other way. But the ones that we seek out to which we give focused attention are always going to be uh, more influential on us simply because we are opening our mind to them in a very different way. So now let's go back to the Greeks. One thing that is distinctive about Greek culture as compared to a lot of other cultures is that their most highly developed cultural forms, their most highly developed forms of the visual arts, the literary arts, tended to take myth as their subject matter. So if you're an ancient Greek man or to a lesser degree, an ancient Greek woman, you have constant opportunities to be consuming very highly polished versions of myths. When you go to the theater, when you go to a festival where someone is reciting the Homeric poems, when you walk to the marketplace and you're passing sculpture. So Greek myth is being produced and consumed in a much more highly influential way than it is in many other cultures. Okay, so let's get down to brass tacks. So, so when I asked you to do this podcast, I said, I think that Greek myth and Greek religion ought to be dealt with mostly separately and deal with them when they kind of cross over. I think you have a slightly different opinion. I wonder if you could maybe talk about how you see myth and religion actually operating together or separately. Well, first of all, I still do respect what the ritualists long ago argued, even though I disagree with the ritualist essentialization of myth. I do think that using myth and ritual together improves, enhances our understanding of, of each of them. We, we can in fact use one to fill in the blanks of the other. So I think any responsible student of Greek religion is going to have to be looking at myth and any responsible student of Greek myth is gonna to have to be thinking about the contexts in which the myths were recited, which often were rituals or we can call them festivals if you prefer, in other words, occasions on which mortals were trying to please the gods in any of various ways. So there's that, they simply can't be separated. Um, my real argument with a lot of earlier scholars of Greek religion and some who are still working right now is simply the fact that they essentialize the myths, that they are forgetting that it was the narrative zip that made the myth serve any purpose at all. Greek myth and religion are, or rather can be, interlocked through their mutual content, the context in which the myths were told, and in the simple placement of stories within religious space itself. In religion, the Greeks worshipped the gods as well as their heroes, who they thought could continue to influence the world in positive and negative ways alike. 
In myth, these same figures are the target of narrative stories of various types. Some could explain the establishment of a cult. Others could explain a cultural phenomenon or be used to express the trials of human existence. And myths can simply be entertaining. There are lots of myths that have little or nothing to do with religion, ones that are equally attached to the rich story world of the Greeks. In my view, Professor Johnson has hit upon a key factor in Greek myth, and I would take it even one step further. The rich narrative tradition of Greek myth not only created the conditions to help foster relationships between humans and the divine, it also provides further impetus for more storytelling. In other words, Greek myth was self-perpetuating. Stories begot stories, and we should never forget that Greek storytelling was part of their competitive culture. Tragedies, which took as their subject Greek myths, were competitions. Playwrights would be judged on the quality of the product. Composers for choral productions and victory songwriters vied with each other for fame and future work. There was no state-mandated version of a or the myth, meaning that one could offer an innovative version, because there was no canonical version of the myth. Perhaps a good metaphor for the relationship between myth and religion resides in the dance of two magnets. On the one hand, you have a body of myth. On the other, a body of religious practices. These two cultural forces could at times be drawn strongly to one another, and thus you have overlap where myth either does or seems to have religious significance. At other times, you might find that these work entirely independent of each other or are even repulsed by each other. As we have seen, there was a large number of ancient thinkers who did not think that the gods depicted in myth resembled anything like real divinity, but were rather inventions of poets who were seeking to entertain. I really like the way that my colleague, Professor Robertson, puts it. You know, I think that there's a broader truism that is true of religion, myth, and, and culture uh, that's true of Greece as it is broadly. And I think that categories of beliefs and, and forms of belief such as myth tend to reinforce ritual and ritual as a series of activities uh, tends to help us remember perhaps more complicated myths, things that we think. So in the Greek world, for example, you have myths that are used as ideologies, as explanations for why we do particular things, but it's also in the doing of these things that we recall and strengthen our belief in particular stories. So if you have something like the Eleusinian Mysteries, this is a very classic case where you have a myth that purported to found the ritual. We don't actually know which came first, right? Uh, was there ever an origin, right? There's no single origin of the thing, but these two tend to mutually implicate and mutually strengthen one another. And I, I say this a lot uh, when I try and teach is that trying to find any one explanation for anything uh, is not the right way to think. It's a series of interlocking, mutually, you know, implicative, inextricable, throw in the jargon that you want here, that there are always complex evolving relationships between things. And I think that in the Greek world, you have such a body of myth, but you also have all this ritual that the two are always in this relationship of one giving and taking to the other. And that's as true of the Eleusinian Mysteries, as it is the Oracle at Delphi, as it is a sacrifice of an ox to Zeus. We've only begun to scratch the surface of this relationship between the religious life of the Greeks and their extensive mythical story world. As we cover more myths in the future, we'll return to Greek religion often, but for now we need to bring this episode to a close. But before we get to the final credits, I want to remind you about Professor Johnson's book, The Story of Myth. It's a great read and it includes a lot of great stuff, including a history of the study of myth itself, 
as well as the power of storytelling to create relationships between us and invisible others, whether they're gods or even fictional characters. It covers a lot of ground. It also treats the idea that Greek mythical characters existed, not in the sense of really existing, but as a conceptual idea, one that was as real an object as, say, Wonder Woman is to us. And as I said before, the book is very readable for the average person while still being highly scholarly. It is heartily recommended. As always, great thanks go to our voice actors, Julia Summer and AJ O'Neill, as well as to our fabulous sound engineer, Samantha Kutsia. Our theme music is Brooklyn T by the talented saxophonist, Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. You should go by and listen to his music. This has been The Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time.